Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, it's Ellie. In this episode of Pop Parenting, I am very excited to get my copy of Avram's book, Where Would You Like to Start? And we dig into one of the canon films of the 1980s, Pretty in Pink. Here we go. What's happening? So first of all, I have to tell you, look what I got. I don't know if you can see it with this crazy background. Ah, yes, I've got, well. I am so excited. I already started to read it. I'm like halfway through. Honest? Yeah, for real. Halfway through. Wow. Yeah, and I read it think? last night. And? I love it. It's so good. It's You know what I love about it? First of all, I love it because um, it really has this genuine quality of like an ode to a teacher, right? Which is such a, a deep and... Um, profound relationship to have somebody that you really feel teaches you on that level and models for you what it is to do something that's meaningful or profound. Um, and so I think that just the relationship is so special. And I love that you kept it in interview format, right? It gives like a colloquial kind of nature to sometimes complicated ideas, which I think is really, it, it just makes it easier to, to hear and understand. So I love it. I think it's beautiful. Clearly a beautiful guy. Yeah. 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 You know, he was a great guy. Uh, the, the inspiration actually to keep it in dialogue uh, was partly letters to a young poet, but also because when he wrote his, um, his sort of his, his seminal book, the book that he's known for multi-generational therapy, he did it he did it with a hand-holding thing for therapists. So I, I used his book and I followed the steps exactly according to how he had this sort of, um, everything was very case example uh, focused. The theory was light and I was able to follow it without ever working with him in Vancouver with my clients step by step by step. I used it over and over again with different clients and the results spoke for themselves. So when I wrote this book, I wanted it to be, I, I wanted a therapist who perhaps only worked with individuals and a behavior Oh, shoot. Hold on. You're muted. One second. Oh, there we go. <laughs> sorry. I think that was my fault. Yeah. So, sorry. yeah. You were saying. Um, sorry? You were saying. Yeah. So, anyways, um, it's uh, it, I wanted therapists uh, and people who, who were just interested in the process to sort of be able to follow the rhythm of, um, you know, the different, the different, an alternative way of um, working with families and kids and marriages that you might typically hear um, in your run-of-the-mill mental health um, organization. Uh, and I think David does a really, really good job fleshing out the difference between something we have talked about over and over again, Ellie, the difference between focusing on symptoms and the difference between focusing on problems. Yeah. And clearly, I think the book lays out the argument that symptoms resolve themselves when we try to get a better understanding of the systemic problem or the generational problem that is playing itself out in each generation. And the symptoms are just a, hello, something is amiss here, right? That's all they are, really. Right. I mean, um, and, um, 
And I just want one, one other word about David, I think is important. David was not anti-psychiatry at all. In fact, David would speak to me about clients of his who would go in and out of hospital in Vancouver and he worked with them. So he, he was very aware of the, the neurochemical component to uh, mental health issues. But he also was very clear that that was one part of a plethora of things that cause emotional suffering in people. And his right. argument is that we could do a lot as individuals with the stuff that we can control. You know, n n you know, brain chemistry is a complex thing. How much we right. can control Ooh. that. And so anyways, um, I love the book. I, I you really know, I was very, um, people get something out of it. I was very surprised by that actually, because, you know, I was thinking about like one of the ways, um, like when I work with people or when I teach is this idea of having of that, you know, we're all four bodies, right? We're a, a physical body, an emotional body, an intellectual body, and a spiritual body. And I saw that in the introduction that he really approached his work in that way. And, and that when, and for me, I always say like when a symptom shows up in one of those bodies, you can guarantee the other ones are being affected also. And so I just thought it was such an interesting way. And I, and I understood more than why you were talking about you know, somebody showing up as symptomatic in the family, that that's just simply a flag. It's a flag that there's something going on and, and now go explore, right? Figure out where that's coming from. And I just thought it was such a great, um, it's such a, a good paradigm. I think it, it just is so inclusive and holistic and, and you can address so many levels um, with that type of plan. I loved it. Yeah. You know, Ellie, you know, often in my practice, someone will say to me in their 30s and 40s that um, they had intestinal issues as a child. They were brought to different specialists. They, they were brought to hospital for appendicitis. They were brought and they, no one can ever find anything. And it's only in retrospect, they think back to how stressful their home life was or something was going on in the family or there was a chronic, whatever the case may be. And they, they, they can connect now as an adult they can connect the psychosomatic um, you know, right. part of their body saying that there's just something is amiss. So yeah, I, I mean, David, by the way, it's funny. <laughs> God bless David. I mean, he, he probably would laugh if he was alive and he hear, hear me say this. Now, David did not create that. I mean, Stephen Covey was talking about this stuff in the 80s um, mm -hmm. in the seven habits of highly effective people. He spoke about um, uh, in his last chapter, sharpening the saw, mind, body, spirit, right. uh, or whatever, something like that. And and he was also free. Um, Covey was not the first person to talk about that. This has been a, right. an idea that's been around a long time, the whole holistic part of our our being. But it's interesting how you know good ideas stand the test of time. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, anyways, for for Let's all of you. In. All of you therapists, um, uh, uh, <laughs> wannabes, or people who are interested in. Uh, uh, Psychotherapy. It's my new book. It's out on Amazon. Okay. Very good. Awesome. Okay. Good. So okay. we're All digging the into, the, into in the, the real line. canon. We're in serious was... '80s canon now that we go to uh, Pretty in Pink, right? Now I've got the song in my head. Who is it? The, uh, the psychedelic furs. The psychedelic yeah, furs. Yeah, totally. I remember okay. being at, being at a cottage in the summer, sitting on the dock, listening to that song, "Psychedelic Furs." That was like. That's where it was at. But Pretty in Pink, I think, was the second. It was after 16 Candles. Am I remembering correctly? It wasn't. Uh, pretty in Pink. Uh, my understanding is he wrote Pretty in Pink. Um, uh, I forget, it's an interesting story. I could be getting this wrong. My understanding is John Hughes. They flew John Hughes out to Hollywood, which he hated because he loved Chicago. All of his films <laughs> were based in Chicago. Right. And, after, and I think it was during The Breakfast Club. I think it was during The Breakfast Club. They flew him out. And he was really angry. He would just stay in his hotel in LA. And I think he would pretty in pink in like a night. 
wow. or something. So it was something like that. I forget. It was Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink. But Pretty in Pink came after the Breakfast Club. Um, and I think pretty you could see in Pretty in Pink, it's a darker film. I think that the themes are um, harder hitting emotionally, I found anyways, um, especially yeah. the stuff around Andy and her mom. Um, yeah, I feels think that's raw very powerful. Bar somehow. It's not as jokey, like going for the laugh. It, it has a certain rawness to it in the characters where you can feel it's, it's there's part there's pains that are that are being dealt with yeah in all of them actually you know it's interesting when you think of the breakfast club they have this like a, a similar experience that all the kids are experiencing in this film all the characters actually have um some sort of deep longing to connect yeah. or a deep longing for love and, and they all have it ducky the the cool guy i forget uh Blaine. I, what's it Blank. No, no. Hold, hold on. Who Spader is who? Is, is Spader Blaine? Oh, right. What was Spader's character's name again? I can't remember now. Yeah. So Blaine is the girl. Is the guy that she dates. Oh, so he's the good guy. Yes. And uh, what's his name? Um, uh, oh, and what's James his name? James Spader. I'm trying to remember his name now. Hang on. Let's, gotta love Google for this kind of thing. Steph. Oh, is it Steph? Yeah, Steph. Yes, Steph. It is Steph. That's right. Yeah. That's right. His name was Steph. That's right. Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, who plays um, uh, Blaine? What's his name again? Uh, Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. You know, he's a travel writer now. Really? Yep. That's he's a so travel wild. writer. And something else about him that's fascinating. Um, one of my favorite, favorite 80s films. It's a really, really bleak film, but... Um, uh, um, time... Yes, less than zero. Oh, Have you ever such a good film. Is that a great film? Yeah. And so um, the sequel to Less Than Zero uh, by uh, Bretton Easton Ellis or something. What's his name? Oh. So yeah, there's a sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a book. It's going to be turned into a film. My understanding is, um, uh, uh, Andrew McCarthy um, read the audio of the book, and it's amazing. The audio version uh, of uh, the sequel so to cool. Less Than Zero. That's okay, we're getting too we're we're geeking out here. Let's. Uh, I'm good. I'm right. Let's get let's get Actually, clinical. There's a great line in the film where Ducky, where she tells Ducky um, that uh, his name is Blaine. He's like Blaine, Blaine. That's the name of an appliance, not a person. <laughs> I was like, he would be having a fit if he heard some of the names now. It's just such right. a great line. All so right. where would you like to begin? I, I've got some themes here. Um, I, I have a question I want to throw at you. You ready? Okay, go. Okay. So there's a lot of lot of stuff that we can tackle at the Breakfast Club, but for today's um, for today's talk, I thought uh, what interests me, anyways, is absolutely how Hughes introduced the mother. Right. I just think it's this was not an accident the way he did this. Um, and so I have a question for you, Ellie. So when when you first saw the film. And even now, what is your guttural reaction or your thinking reaction about this mother? What do you think about, well, like what comes to mind when you think about the mother and, and, uh, and the ways she's introduced in the film? So I think it's hard because on one hand, um, you know, as a mother, it, it's really, it's painful. Like she just seems like someone who irresponsibly disappears and then but then later in the film where you hear Andy speaking to her father and she says like she just couldn't handle it and I knew it you know she said like Andy says to her dad like 
I knew she couldn't handle it and that she was going to leave. Like, how come you didn't know that? And so in that moment, I also have compassion, you know, for her as a mother and as a human who clearly was in a situation that wasn't working for her, wasn't going to be good for her. So on one hand, selfish. And on the other hand, she's a person with a story. So, so there's a lot of conflicted feelings there. As a mother, it's something that you just can't ever imagine, right? Leaving your kid, leaving your family. Um, so I think there's a lot of pieces to it. Yeah, it, it's funny. You just reminded me. I forgot about that scene with uh, Andy um, saying that she recalls uh, that that mom couldn't handle it and um, and and was going to leave. Um, you know, usually, at least clinically, Ellie, in my practice, the narrative is it's very, very rare a mother would do that. In my practice over the past 30 years, I've heard fathers, you know, the, the, the father who abandons the family, who, who moves to Florida with, you know, his young mistress or something. And by the way, that, that's not just an archetype. That, this is generally, if, if a parent is going to just leave, right. generally what I have experienced, it's, it's dad who, who, will, who will leave. Um, so it's interesting that Hughes did a switcheroo here because it is not common that mothers yeah. would it happens but it's very very rare so i think that's something although it has disney overtones because when you think about every <clears throat> disney film the protagonist's mother is out of the picture those old disney films where the princess's mother has died where it's the oh. stepmother that she's being raised by right bambi bambi's mother dies like there's all of this there was this ongoing theme for a very long time and i wonder if it was partly you know the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be the mother out of the picture and when they made those disney films they were like what is the most tragic thing that could happen to this character and then what do they do with it and the most tragic thing they could think of was you know something happens to their mom Actually, it's funny you said that because Kramer versus Kramer was similar because in that, that was like the big divorce film of the 1980s. Right. I, remember, I remember it traumatized me watching that film. Oh, but yeah, that, totally. That the mother, there's another example. You're right, actually, Ellie, because there's another example where, very uncommon, but the director and the writer chose to focus on, but the mother left. She comes back uh, like halfway through the film or two thirds right. through the film, but she leaves and like the dad is left. You know, trying to manage work and his kid and all this kind of stuff. So that, that's interesting, actually, that Hollywood um, often, um, I think, I don't know what you think, but probably wants to pull up the heartstrings a bit because of the primordial connection between a mother and her children that if a mother leaves, you know, it's like a lioness leaving her cubs. It's something, it's yeah. not done. And look, some would argue, I think Jung spoke about this a lot, where, you know, one of the uh, essential primordial wounds is if the mother isn't present, that there's something about that attachment, that relationship that creates foundational development. So it's it sort of made, you know, on a, I would say a psychological level, but on an emotional level, yeah, it, it, it's, it's fracturing, you know, if the relationship with the mother is difficult. Yeah, yeah, and so, <clears throat> so here's, here's where um, uh, I like to sort of go into uh, expanding the viewer, whoever's listening to this, expanding our understanding of what we always miss when we see things like this. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I can't recall, again, I've been doing this job for almost three decades. I can't recall any of the most horrendous situations that I saw when I was working for some nonprofit agencies, a situation where 
a parent leaves a loving, happy marriage. If you recall, and I have the script here, when Ducky sits down with, I forget his name, the father. I forget his name, though. Do you remember his name? Anyways, the father, Andy's father. Right. Uh, and he, Jack. Sorry? Jack. Jack. And he sits down, and the, the script goes like this. Um, the father says to Ducky, I loved her, and one day she just split. And Ducky says, wait, this was Andy's mom? And the father says, yes. Now, look, you can love Andy, but that doesn't mean she'll love you back. Okay? So I don't want to focus on that. We, we could. We could. Because I think there's a message here about marriage and love and, and breakups. and Yeah, but that's not what I want to focus on. The, the message seems to be that, you know, sometimes you're just in love and a parent will just get up and leave. Right. Like, no, that, that's the message, right? I, I just, where did it come from? I don't know. It just, sometimes the world gets anchored in a certain way and people just leave their families. I have never seen that to be uh, the case. So what's the one voice, the one voice we're missing in this entire film? The Who's mother. the one person on her? The mother, the mother, right. Um, and so, although we don't know it's a movie, but, you know, Hughes wanted us to be very sympathetic to Andy, obviously, and also right. sympathetic to dad. Um, he clearly, I think, most people were either angry with the mother, right, or left thinking, how could she do that? What kind of monster? Right. Or, or if you have, you know, even a lot of compassion, you might say, she must have really been struggling with a serious mental health issue. Like, maybe she had schizophrenia or something, right. you know? I mean, you're left with sort of like this idea that, um, uh, that there's something wrong with her. Yeah. I, I think that I think that's unfortunate. Um, although I, I understand why it was used as a motif in the film. So here's some questions I have, Ellie, and maybe we can riff on this. Yeah. Okay. Because because we're thinking about parenting here. Okay, so, so here's some questions. First of all, the first question I always think about when a, a family comes to my office is not the moment of the symptom. So for example, a parent calls me up, right? My kid was kicked out of grade nine for selling marijuana in school. Or uh, my, child, um, uh, my child got into a fist fight in grade 10, okay? That is not interesting to me at all, okay? What is interesting to me is, now, by the way, of course, I would never say that on the call. I listen to the, you know. <laughs> that, you know Whatever. You know. <laughs> yeah, so here, here is what, what's interesting to me. The first thing I'm thinking about is what is going on in the family at the moment that the symptom sort of comes to the fore? So that's the first thing I'm thinking about. So what I'm thinking about is when mom left this family and she abandoned Andy and her dad, what else was going on in the family beyond what was happening within mom? What else was going on? For example, we do have some facts. What do we know about dad? What does John Hughes tell us about dad? Well, he has like a hard time keeping a job. Um, you know, he, he also just seems like a little, like not completely in touch with reality. Like um, you, you have a hard time pinning him down in a certain way. You know how many men in my office, Ellie, I've worked with? Very accomplished guys, by the way, at work. But they just want to hold on to those late teen university years. So they've got kids, they've got young kids. Right. And they got a job. They still are coming home four in the morning, 
driving their wives crazy right because their nails are still in the wall and they're being dragged into adulthood they've been dragged into their wedding and they've been dragged into fatherhood right so you know he reminds me a little bit of um just a sort of like a, a bit of a lost soul um i don't know if he drinks is there is there addiction stuff there with him it's hard to tell it's hard to tell he kind of has that like he sort of wakes up every morning sort of disheveled you can't right tell he doesn't seem to be fathering you know right which is kind of interesting right yeah it's, it's a clear example of what we would call in my in, in my industry um you know andy is parenting the parent right, right. that she that she is functioning as the elder in this house and it's a role reversal um and so uh, my first question is what happened? What was going on in the family when mom left? It's the first question I would, I would think about. Um, and who do you ask that question to? Andy, she was too young. She probably wouldn't be able to know all the different things that were happening in the family. Dad, yeah, dad might be able to share something, but it, dep it depends how vested he is on the, in the narrative because right. if the narrative changes to, ownership for himself, he's not going to disclose that right away. So often in a family, when I'm trying to understand, why would a parent leave on November 2009, you know, what was going on? I might look to speak to an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, and not in an accusatory way. I'm not looking for a smoking gun. I'm trying to understand what was happening in the entire family. Right. Okay. So it's a question. I, we don't know, by the way, Hughes never tells us. So that's one question. Another question I have is what was dad's part? Right. Do we ever do we ever hear that in the film? Does Andy even ever? I, I forget. No, and the truth is, he never. The only narrative that the story that he has is that she left. He was hurt. Um, he's broken from that experience, but it never really goes any further than that. I don't think he he never really acknowledges the reality of that. Never, none, never mind taking responsibility for some part he might have had in it. So I yeah. think that's interesting. It's sort of really left in this very unresolved, unexamined place. You know, um, uh, we're not talking about infidelity here, but why not, right? There's always room for infidelity, right? right. We can always talk about infidelity. Um, <laughs> so what, what, one of the things that's interesting about infidelity, when I get a, when I get a call about an affair or infidelity, um, same thing, uh, in my office, um, often you know, you have to start with the, the position of when a couple comes to my office, and let's say they want to stay married. So they come in, you have to start with the, the actual grievance, which is the affair, right? It's not good, right? This is a problem. We have to address that. But you don't want to let that go on too long. You want to get, if the marriage is going to work or if they're going to be able to uh, uh, divorce and co-parent with some degree of peace, you have to get beyond that. And, and the person who did not have the affair has to get to a point, and David might even talk about this in the book because David used to speak about this a lot. You have to be able to get to the point and say, what was my part? And that really hurts to ask that question. But Ellie, I'm telling you something. If, if you do this with the right timing, people sort of have this little impish grin or tears and they'll uh -huh. say, they'll either say, I saw this coming or I had a hunch or, and they'll go back five years, 10 years ago. It's very important as parents um, and as people in relationship to always ask the question. Now, look, the answer might be nothing, but it's always important to ask the question. If there is something going on in your community, in your family, in your marriage, at school, how do I contribute to this in any way? If the answer is if the answer is nothing, I really don't think you're thinking 
correctly about the situation. Um, and um, and by the way, the, you know th this isn't about the the uh, the polar uh, the polar opposite of you know people who are, who have more um, disposition to serious depression where everything is their fault because that's almost the opposite of nothing is my fault. I'm talking right. about a sober an accounting of my spouse just left me and took off on my kid and me. Is there anything that I contributed to the environment at home that might have led to such a discomforting feeling? Now, we don't know. Right. Nothing is disclosed in the film. But there is no way his accounting to Ducky that this is just a loving relationship. Right. Like everything was perfect. And then suddenly she left. Yeah. Right. And, and that's why I'm glad you brought up that vin the vignette with Andy, because, it, uh, you know, like Hughes always does, he turns the teens into the wise elders always. And so Andy has to inform her dad, actually, dad, I saw stuff. You didn't. Which yeah, even lends... She actually says in that exchange, like, remember that time she left before? Like, she actually alludes to the fact that, you know, she went out one night and, like, didn't come home. And then, you know, she came home and I was 14 and I kind of knew, like, things weren't going so well. So... There had already, you know, they allude to a pattern of either her mom not being well or like that there's already stuff happening. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's a, that's a question that, um, that I, I would ask. Um, so I, I want to just, I wanna just yeah. throw something in while you say that because, you know, it can be so intense for people when they hear something like, well, if this person cheated on you, what did you have to do with that? And I just want to clarify, like, I think neither of us are coming at that same as you would say it's not about parent blaming it's not about blaming the person who was cheated on it's just more like if you're part of the problem then you're also part of the solution and i think um i remember a dear friend that i had who um kept getting into relationships where their her partner would cheat on her and she was very confused by this like she just kept ending up with guys who would do this until years later, she found out that her father had cheated on her mother. And the moment she started to understand that, that she herself was repeating a pattern, the pattern stopped. So it wasn't that she had no part in it, and it wasn't that she had all part in it, but she had her part in like continuing this situation. And so I think, you know, the power of understanding your part in whatever's going on, that's more what we're pointing to here, right? Like, it's not about blaming somebody for something that happens to them. It's more, okay, so, but you're part of the relationship too. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great example. It, it's, um, it's something Ellie, that we've discussed before about a reciprocity, that either you see reciprocity in relationships where we are both contributing to something with our energy, with our past experiences, or we live in a world of cause and effect. There are right. good people, there are bad people, bad people do bad things to good people, and good people suffer. And, and, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, there aren't sociopaths out there, and I'm not suggesting that really bad things happen to innocent people, but that's not what I see in my office. Okay, that's, that's just not what I see in my office. I see right. reciprocity. I see generational things playing itself out. I'll give you an example. Uh, this is a friend of mine, and he, he doesn't listen to this, so otherwise he would, he would, um, uh, we would not be friends after I share the story. <laughs> but I have a friend of mine who buys a bike. So he buys a bike in Toronto, okay? This is a few years ago. 
and I bike everywhere. So he buys this bike and he lives in the, near the annex. And so he buys this bike and he gets into almost five accidents on the first day of having his bike along Bloor. Like not, not serious accidents, but like, you know, he, he's riding his bike and he hits the bumper of a car. He's riding his bike and, and he gets cut off and then he gets into a screaming mess. Five incidents within one day. So he calls me up, he sends me an email and he goes, we're both from Montreal. And he goes, you know, I thought Montreal drivers were bad, but Toronto is just insane. They're cr Everyone's crazy here. I got into almost five accidents today. And I said to him, you know, that's interesting because I was also biking today. I didn't get into one accident at all. Actually, I haven't gotten into an accident, nothing like that. Now, it's not that I'm a better bike rider than him. Right. right? Because I have my own Michigas. But I asked him this question. Do you think it's all that, I mean, how is it possible that you got into five incidents in one day, Ellie? This is one day. Right. <laughs> we, we both rode our bikes on the same day. Okay. So, you know, it, 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 and now, by the way, I know him. He's a bit of a hothead. Great guy, by the way. Very bright guy. But he can get, he, he's a bit of a hothead. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the question, the, the question that I think um, is not uh, asked, uh, but I think it's important to ask when, when you're watching a film like this, you're thinking about yourself, or you're thinking as a parent, is, you know, what energy am I bringing to the situation? What, what is my part? Because if you can come up with anything, something that is legit, that's something you can do something about. Right. Right. And if this father, by the way, wants a healthy relationship going forward, he better find a way to, because if his, if his answer is, oh, just, you know, sometimes you love and people just, they just abandon you all the time. Right. It's going to be really hard for him to trust again. And probably, by the way, that's, that's probably why he's single. Because if he walks around with the trauma of, you know, if I give you my heart, you can leave at any moment. And he really believes that's what happens. I, I don't know why I would ever get into a relationship again, ever. Why? Yeah, and look, look what happens to, uh, look what happens to Andy then when Blaine ducks out on her, right? When he decides, like he just disappears before prom and she hits the roof because what's happening, the same idea that you can just love someone and everything can be good and then suddenly they can be gone. And she's like, you know, suddenly hit full force with this reality that her father's been impressing on her this entire time, that sometimes people just leave. And right. now that's been impressed on her in terms of what is love about? Well, this is one of the things that happens when you're in love. Right, and I think, uh, I think that um, where Andy is really going to, uh, if there was a sequel to the, if Pretty in Pink 2 where they got married, Right. I think that's where really that, that kind of crucible of marriage is really where you, you would see Andy's insecurities about, you know, as smart as she is, and she's very wise and she's very bright. I right. think it would be during some of those critical moments, you know, we often talk about nodal events in our families, um, times, uh, certain dates in a family that stick in our mind, they, they sort of, um, uh, they get lodged in our mind around certain uh, uh, months of the year or something. I think for Andy, right around the time she would have kids, um, and the natural stressors of marriage would kick in in parenting. I think, I think that that's where you might see a panic attack or anxiety. She wouldn't know where it's coming from, but it would be the memory of her mother leaving at a certain time when she's that age. So that's where the real work is going to be for her. How does she self-regulate when she now has a child and, and her husband perhaps is overwhelmed and starts to distance a bit? How does she keep it together that that's not my mother? Right. This is not my mother. This is a different person and doesn't overreact or underreact. Right. I mean, this is this is the challenge for all of us. We all have a past. We all have seen things, and it embeds. It gets into our emotional DNA and our bones. We walk around with this, mm -hmm. and and sometimes we over and underreact, uh, you know, uh, based on a projection. And it's 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 really a feeling. It's not a fact. And so this is 
very powerful stuff. Um, I, you know, something, um, a question for you, uh, Ellie, I don't know if you thought about this. Um, I, I don't know, did Andy ever mention that her mom reached out to her? I forget, does it ever come up in the film? Did, does mom ever reach out to Andy? I don't think so, no. And does Andy ever mention reaching out to mom? No, I think they're both kind of just in this ex like type of victim type acceptance that they've just been left. I don't remember anything in the film. I could be wrong, but I don't remember anything where her mom's reached out or, or they've reached out to her. Yeah, this is a situation, by the way, uh, um, when I have an Andy in my office, and by the way, this actually does happen quite a bit. So I have a 25-year-old woman in my office, and she hasn't talked to her, usually it's her father. It, not always, but usually it's her father. So she hasn't talked to her father in, let's say, 10 years. And she's got all her reasons why. He cheated on my mom. And he, you know, and I, I see my job as, while having compassion, also uh, putting a bit of, uh, uh, let's call it um, compassionate pressure on understanding the incredible uh, consequences of cutoff in a family. Right. I, I think young women who cut their fathers out of their lives, guys do it too, pay a huge price going forward. So this is a situation where if Andy said, you know, my mom never reaches out to me. Let's say that was in the film. She never right. reaches out to me. What a cold. My question to her would be, well, you're 17. How often do you reach out to your mom? She doesn't deserve it. She, and on and and at some point, we have to take responsibility for our part of reconnecting with family and expanding our story and breaking away from sort of cause and effect, good people, bad people. It's, it'll be important for Andy, if there was a pretty pink too, right. to understand what the hell happened there. Is my dad's version the right version of what happened with my mom? Or maybe there was something else there. Was dad physically abusive to mom and she went for her safety? Did mom take off because let's say it was a mental health issue. What does Andy know about that? I mean, there's so many ways to expand the story beyond you just love people sometimes and they leave you. Right. Just what happens. And so it's gonna be very important if Andy's gonna have successful relationships after to expand that story. And the number one person that if I was working with someone like Andy that I would encourage her to do would be some way of reaching out to her mom, maybe with letters. You start with a very brief letter, you keep it brief, check in, how are you? Keep it brief, lower the anxiety, slowly building towards not a rapprochement, it's not about a good relationship, it's about expanding the facts because the more facts we have about our family, it right. lowers anxiety, it lowers depression, and it also creates rahmanas for ourselves and our, and our family that there aren't angels and devils, it's just human beings trying to love based on how they were loved. Right. That's all it is, you know? So anyways, I thought that was- um, Well, what uh, happens, was, say, like what it, it sounds in the film almost like they don't even know where she is. So what happens like when, like when you can't find the person or God forbid they've passed away before that, you know, rapprochement is possible. What do yeah. you do then? How do you expand that information? I know at some point you've said, you know, try to find other people in the family. Um, but what if you can't find that person and there's been cut off for a long period of time? Where do you go from there? So first of all, it is always interesting. I don't take people at their word, not because I think people are lying, but because I think people need to stick to their narrative to lower um, cognitive dissonance and also to lower emotional pain. So okay. whenever I have someone in my office and they say, um, uh, whatever, my, um, my parent or my sibling who I haven't spoken to in 10 years, and I say, well, where are they? And they'll say, I don't know. I don't take them at their word. I hear that as an emotional thing. So I might say something like, um, yeah, but if you had to guess, where do you think they right. might be? And they always say, oh, I think they're in Ontario somewhere. 
Right. Like, oh, like Northern Ontario. No, no, more like downtown somewhere. And the more asked questions, it's quite clear they they would know how to get to that person if if they had you know their dithers. If you know, I mean, they they would know how to get to that person. Now, I have situations in my in. Um, and by the way, Ellie, I, oh my God, we could spend three hours on this. I have clients of mine who use twenty three and Me to connect with relatives through bloodlines, it's the, the technology we have is right. unbelievable to understand who our family is. But I, I've had family where, you know, they'll say to me, they hear me speak at one of, you know, a JFI event or something. They'll say like, I really need to reach out. You know, I want to know more about my family. My parents have both died. So who do I speak to? And so what I'll ask them very simple questions. Well, did your parents have any siblings? And almost always they'll say, well, there's a, you know, they, they had a, you know, they have a sister, but she's 80 and, you know, I think she's in early stage Alzheimer's. I'm not sure she's got it together. And I'll say, when's the last time you spoke to them? And they'll say, never really. I'm wow. like, well, you know what? If you really want, you, you might want to just try calling and seeing. 95% of the time, Elliot, the clients who, who are motivated will, will get back to me or I'll get an email and they'll say some version of, um, I want to thank you so much for doing that. I had, I just found out stories. I had no idea. Some yeah. version of, I had no, no idea. I didn't know. A quick little vignette, Ellie. Uh, when my Zadie was alive, I took it for granted that he was alive, you know, and then he died. And I never really thought about getting stories about Suval, Suval, uh, Suvalki, Poland, where he, he grew up. I just never thought about it. When he died, there was a, a, a vacuousness in, in my life about my history. And so I got nervous. And so I reconnected with his brother, my uncle Moisha, who I never had a, a close relationship with. And I just heard stories in the family that he was sort of like the non-intellectual one of my family, you know? Mm -hmm. And I heard all sorts of stories about this guy, uh, both from my Zadie and from other family members. So I reached out to him. We developed a lovely relationship where I would go into Montreal and speak. And I found out stuff, Ellie, not just interesting things about Poland and where they grew up, but, and I'm not going to say lies, but. I would say understandings of what was happening in our family that was so different from what he told me that yeah. literally changed my understanding of our origin story where yeah. I would, I brought it to my mom and her sisters and there was pushback because it changed the narrative of who my Zadie was. Not that he wasn't a good and loving man, but it sort of changed some of the hero stuff that I was told. Yeah. Um, it's, so that's why family, uh, family research is so important and such a big part of the therapy that I do, because the more we understand the facts of who our family is, the more we understand the reactivity that happens in our family, and the more we understand ourselves. It's so, so important. Um, so I would, I would always push back on people who would say, I don't, you know, there's no one, I can't speak to anyone. Yeah. There's no one out there. I, very, it just, it's not true. I mean, what really what people are saying is I'm too scared right. or I'm too anxious or, uh, or Avram, if I really do this, that means that I have to take responsibility now for, for um, uh, reimagining or rethinking about decisions I've even made in my life. Um, and right. so a lot like of people don't want the responsibility. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, exactly. Who, do I think, who do I think I am because this is the family that I come from and this is the story. Oh, well, if that story changes, then who am I now? By the way, Ellie, I think it's important to say this. We said this before, but I just want people to know a lot of people hear this. And they think it's all psychobabble and great for you, Mr. Family Therapist. But, you know, I'm busy. <laughs> uh, the research that's coming out now is absolutely clear. The research suggests that teenagers who know their family history, facts, dates, where, where family history is shared at the table. And um, I, I, and look, Yiddishkeit is great and studying Torah is great, but that's not where the research seems to suggest, although it might. It's about our story, 
our journey, your grandfather and grandmother, the challenges they had, it somehow the research suggests that even if it's even if it's um, uh, uh, troubling, that it's important for families to to look at what worked, what didn't work, the journeys that we went on. This is what you have inherited in the good way. This is what you might want to rework. Right. Kids who hear that are, are um, it seems to suggest that kids who hear that when they become young adults are grounded in sort of like a cement, a cement of tradition of their own making that came from their, their forefathers and foremothers. Right. And, and that it seems to lower anxiety, lower depression, that, that, that there is a continuation of tradition and, and just people do, do, do better. Um, and I, think so I, I really want to stress that. You know? Yeah, I think it's fascinating on two levels. One is... Um, Look, I mean, if we, because this is Jewish Family Institute, like if we look at Torah, what is Torah? It's the story of our families, right? It's a story. It's all of the stories of what, who we come from and what, you know, how they got to where they were. We said we learned about Avram and Sarah and then their kids. And then we learned about their kids' kids. And then we learned about their kids' kids' kids. Like it really is a family story that tracks for us. And then we read it every year. You know how powerful that is because then we realize oh this is our family this is where we come from this is the roots of our story our kind of meta story and we're connected to that and it's such a powerful thing to feel connected to a story um and i also think of i remember years ago when i was in israel and one of our security guards was um a young uh, ethiopian jew who um with his family had like you know, walked to the drop point where they could get to Israel. It's quite a phenomenal story. And I remember asking him, you know, what's, what are some of the challenges that the Ethiopian Jews have had when they're coming to Israel? And aside from, um, you know, some of the racism or things that have come up, he said, you know, one of the big challenges is in Ethiopia, in order to marry someone in the Jewish community, you have to say back, seven generations of your family Hmm. and each prospective bride or groom has to be able to do that because they know whether this bride and groom are right for each other based on the houses that they come from. And they said the big, one of the biggest challenges is now coming to Israel and they're meeting other Jews who most of them can't do that. They can't say back seven generations. Like, I mean, if you met a Jew in North America who could say back seven generations, you know, outside of, say, yeah. a community, it, you never meet anybody. But this was part of their culture, and it was how you got married. And, and there was something about really deeply understanding your generational story that allowed them to sort of see, ah, oh, this is a good fit. Um, and what's disappearing as they are no longer being able to do that. I think it's a real testament to what you're saying of, how powerful those, what house you come from um, speaks to how you'll be able to build your house like for the future. Right, yeah, yeah, that's that, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, we don't, you know, we, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting, we, you and I have talked about this when I wrote my first, my second book with my wife and it was a, a supposed to be a pre-marriage workshop and how you and I spoke about um, the the necessity of creating a comprehensive marriage prep something program that goes deeper than what we currently have, which is basically uh, lip service to a, a, a pre-programmed service that a rabbi sort of like, you know, yeah, do it because we got to do it. And, you know, um, and, um, and I think that um, 
you know, I, I think a lot about how the Hasidim get married. Um, and I've worked with some Hasidim in my practice uh, about, you know, the families do a lot of work behind the scenes before those, those two young, you know, uh, Hasidic people meet in hotel lobby for like, you know, their 30 minute date. There's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes of looking yeah. at um, Yichus and, and, and all this sort of stuff. So it's not like it's 20 minutes of, of, of a blind date. I mean, there's been a lot of work that went, you know, beforehand. So um, I, I think that, um, that that idea, you know, um, that idea of, in, in this, I guess, in the more secular world of uh, my encouragement would be, if you're dating, is there any way that, you know, you can find ways of talking about family history and tradition to see, first of all, are you aligned on some of this? But also, it's a really good way to get to know someone, actually, to, to understand someone's family history, much more than personality in terms of what movies do you like, what, you know, what films do you, do you watch, um, what are your politics? Um, if you really want to see the character of someone, listen to their family story and, and their yeah. history, and I think you'll learn a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the importance of that is what we see in this film, which is if you don't understand your family history, you won't understand what's going on when it starts to play out in your own home. Well, I can, I can tell you right now, Ellie, that's the that's the big message that I would, uh, you know, I wanted to leave this, uh, this webinar, um, this call with, is that there, you know, uh, say what you want about Freud. Uh, one of the things he did say is that something will repeat this repetition thing that happens in our lives. And most people can see it. They can see it, right? I mean, Ellie, I look at myself. I get angry in more or less very similar ways that my dad get ang got angry. My understanding <laughs> is my grandfather was the same way. Like, it's not, there isn't such a huge difference. There, there is change, by the way, and profound change, I think, that I've made. But it's not like, you know, I was dropped off by a stork, you know, right. um, on the doorstep. I mean, I see a lot of similarities. <clears throat> and I think the less clear we are on our family history, and in Andy's case, if she goes into her next marriage with just a hope and a prayer and a good therapy book that she's going to do something radically different than her mom, um, I think she will get so anxious every time her partner starts to distance, which is natural in a marriage, she's going to overreact or she'll do what a lot of people do. She'll break up before they even have a chance to hurt her heart. You know, Ellie, you know people like this. Right. They end their relationships right away, right? They just want to get out before they get hurt. And so this is something that we all have to grapple with our-, our Yeah, our or, or even I think for Andy, every time she would start to feel overwhelmed and like, I can't handle this, the anxiety level of, oh my gosh, maybe I'll be like my mother and leave. Right. right? You know, of, of struggling with like, trying to understand that, that, that anxiety will just, she'll, she'll just be through the roof and trying to handle situations where someone who doesn't have that background when parenting is really hard and when you're exhausted or when a relationship is really hard and you're exhausted but if you have that story in your head of oh what do you do when you're overwhelmed you leave um then you're really caught you know that you're you're, you're set up a little bit for failure unless you can break that cycle in some way yeah yeah that's a, that's a good point actually um hey i think is there a couple of questions that we need sure. to do before yeah. so, um so I think Michelle was asking in the chat, she was saying, why do you think the mom left Andy? It's very different leaving your spouse from leaving both the spouse and the child. Um, so I think you were sort of alluding to this a little bit earlier, like it's very unusual to see a mother who leaves, uh, leaves her kids. Yeah, and so it's hard. there's nothing in the film that would 
provide any sort of evidence about what was happening. So what I um, would hope to leave people here on this call with is questions, uh, questions. And so I think what Hughes wanted you to do, I think he wanted you to sort of, um, for dramatic purposes, he wanted you just to think that good people just leave, which is really scary, but it works for a film. In real life, uh, the question of what was happening in the family at the time that mom left the family twice, I think, according to uh, yeah. Andy, she left a, a before. Um, and so uh, I, I prefer to leave the question because there's no way to know what was happening. Uh, but what have I heard over the years where, um, where uh, a parent leaves, you know, one of the motifs is they felt useless in the family, so why stay? You know, somehow they, they, they came up with this um, over the years, they just felt like they were so sidelined on the periphery of the family that why stay. Some parents have such a tremendous amount of guilt about something or shame that they think it's better off if they leave the family. Right, like you know, I'm such a terrible parent, they'd be better off without me. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, and it's a, it's a distortion. And I think that yeah. people in, the, in those very painful moments don't understand how painful it is for the kids. But I, I really do think that the parents who do that really believe they're doing best by the kids. Let's say they have a serious drug, uh, you know, abuse situation. They think that I just got to get away from my kids to protect them. So I, I think that you really have to always ask the question, what was happening for, for a human being to do something that, that runs counter to our nature? As David talks about in my book, our nature is to be creative and loving, okay, um, and helpful. Why would a human being do something that would be so counterintuitive to that? And to answer that question, you have to ask a bigger question that expands beyond the individual. Right. Yeah, I also think we can see, it seems to me, from the, the, from the way that the father is, if his wife was having serious difficulties, he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would know how to support her, who would know how, like, he seems like someone who ignores things that are difficult, right, and just sort of, like, pretends like they're not happening in some way, or just feels victimized by them. Um, that's an excellent point, Ellie, actually. That's a very, very important point because, um, you know, it takes his kid basically to say, like, stop lying to me. You're not going to work. Like, you're lying to me. Right. Remember he says in the film, like, uh, I went to work for that interview. Yeah. And she's like, no, I saw your car in the driveway. Why do you lie to me? Or so, it was some sort of a scene. It's a very powerful yeah. scene, but it's very unsettling. It's very unsettling, especially if you grew up in a family where you did see this, where you saw parents with, you know, the term that we use in, in my work is underfunctioning, right? Yeah. That they're so anxious that they're acting like a child in many ways. Um, and so if he was doing it with his daughter, you could only imagine, I mean, and we can only imagine the kind of pressure her, uh, her mom was under if he was doing that, you know, let's say he was spending all the family money and that the mother came home all the time, the money was gone. Or let's say he never went to work and she was doing everything and she was exhausted. It's hard to know. But you can sort of see this goes way beyond just a, a cruel woman abandoning her family. There, right. Hugh gives us just a little bit of clues that this is more complex right. than, uh, than what we see. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a fascinating dynamic. Um, do you think, you know, last week, the last few weeks when we did Ferris Bueller, we sort of like then projected, okay, so 20 years down the road, like we've talked a little bit about where um, where it, we'll see Andy get tripped up in these kinds of relationships. What are, what are some of the things that Andy could do, like aside from learning a little bit more and seeing the bigger picture, what would you say if she came into your office, 
you know, and said, Hey, I keep trying to have these relationships, but I'm so anxious that the person's going to leave me. Um, you know, how would you help her in some way? What would you talk to her about? So the first thing when someone like Andy comes to my office, they're never coming into work with, with their parent. I mean, that's not how people come to my office at her, at her age. Well, and by the way, she wouldn't come to my age. She, she would come to my office. She'd probably be, Andy would probably be 27, first child, um, is either having panic attacks or is fighting chronically with her husband, doesn't understand why they're fighting all the time. Uh, he doesn't get it either. Right, Maybe like everything getting... was so good until he had a kid. Yeah, it would be the right. child, usually, I mean, whenever you're looking, when, whenever um, I'm doing couples work, you're looking for the certain events and time periods. So it's usually planning a wedding, a death, um, first child, and empty nest syndrome. So you're looking at any of those times, and that's usually when it creates enough pressure that old forces come to the fore. Um, and that's why, it's so interesting, that's why um, uh, young people, and when I say young people, people who, who are dating, um, they, there's not enough pressure to bring that stuff up to the fore. And that's why we get sort of um, uh, disillusioned because on the dates, everything is great. You know, So why are things so difficult now? And that's because the crucible of marriage and the push and pull that happens in, in, in a long-term relationship will reenact all that old stuff on our family. So that's how Andy would show up. I would not talk about her mother. We, we would deal with the relationship and just try to sort of steady the seas there because they had a child or something. But at some point, what I'm doing is in my notes, I'm making reference to any little window that opens to go back a generation. Because if I can get Andy to go back a generation and think about a pattern that's repeating, it becomes less personal with her spouse and it becomes less personal with her spouse, she stops that catastrophizing of, I married the wrong person, he's gonna abandon me, and it expands it now to a family of origin story that she could do something about. The key with couples work so often is to lower some of that personal, um, you know, why are you such a monster or why am I such a monster? Right. To expand it beyond, beyond that thing. And then usually if the anxiety comes down, people can hear the family of origin stuff. But if you go too quick with someone like Andy, and, and rightly so, she would say, you're not hearing me. We've got a young kid at home. What are you talking about my mother for or my grandparent? Right. right? So you got to start where they're at. <clears throat> and I think the, the first key would be um, to sort of, you know, uh, 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 you know, help Andy understand that some of these feelings that are coming up, uh, you know, are being reawakened because of something that she experienced a long, long time ago. Um, right. And this happens for, for all of us, you know, for all of us. Anybody, by the way, that was in New York on 9-11, okay? and that saw the planes going to the towers, I guarantee you every August or September, they start either getting insomnia or the, I, <clears throat> I know because I worked with a family like this, they start getting anxious or panic attacks 10 years after the event, 12, 12 years after the event. Yeah. The, fall, the fall will never quite be the same yeah. um, for them. And as Jews, we, we have a very un clear understanding about nodal events and trauma and how it plays itself out to the generation. So, you know, History is very important and it has a way of playing itself out, especially if we choose not to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wonder too, if Andy would ever look back or like, you know, if you imagine what her family history could be, like maybe she actually comes from a line <clears throat> of women who leave, you know, like maybe her mother's mother left and her mother's mother left and, you know, kind of, you know, so on and so forth. And then, you well, know, that's why on the yeah. of my new book, we have a we have a family diagram because it's what Ellie. It's one of the reasons why um, when you have a visual representation of alcoholism that goes on the paternal line, every male, you know, or panic attacks, or whatever, and it goes back four or five generations. You right. know what you're up against. 
Like you can't argue with the facts. You can't right. argue with the visuals. That's why uh, it's one of the reasons why I always do a family diagram for my for my families, because you do see not always it's subtle, but you do see a certain type of uh, repetitive patterned response over the generations. And then what, what people, I don't have to do it, Ellie. They'll say, oh boy, I guess I got a lot of work or something like that. You know, but that's right. helpful, but that's helpful yeah, because it sure. moves the focus away from yourself that I'm a horrible person or that my partner's horrible or that my kids are horrible. And it's like, oh, I guess, you know, these are the lemons that I got, you know, that I've inherited and you know, what is it? Yeah, and you can take it, take it out of the charge of an emotional genetic thing that's been passed down right like so you know well you know if you look back however many generations everyone was freaking out about money and it never mattered how much money they had they were just always freaking out about money exactly. so i freak yeah. out about money but you know if we think of it on a physical level okay everyone in my family has had high cholesterol so i'm now have high cholesterol so okay i'm not gonna what am I going to do? I'm not going to just be like, oh, well, then that's the way it's always going to be. No, you know, you have a tendency towards high cholesterol. So you're going to adjust your diet. You're going to think about what you eat. You're going to, you know, I think that comparison of just because it's an emotionally genetic thing doesn't mean you're stuck with it. Like right. that there, are, there are lots of um, things you can do to sort of um, inoculate yourself or help yourself to, to heal some of those pieces. Exactly. And that's why when Dr. Bowen, uh, when, when Dr. Bowen came up with the family diagram, he, he was the one who created this. Uh, Monica McGoldrick uh, sort of um, uh, coined the term genogram, but Dr. Bowen came up with the family diagram. He's a physician and he was using that to chart exactly what you're saying. Before he went into psychiatry, he was an internist and he was using diagrams to understand um, issues of cholesterol and cardiac issues. Because if you understand that your dad had a heart attack at 40 and your grandfather had a heart attack at 40, well then maybe you can do something, not everything. You right. can't change exactly the inner pipes, but you can do lifestyle changes. And then he borrowed that type of exactly what you're talking about to emotional functioning. Mm. Um, and so there's, there's a reason why in um, uh, Monica McGoldrick's famous book on genograms that a lot of family doctors bought the book and they use genograms in their office, but they use it to chart. Uh, generally, they use, use it to chart uh, uh, physical markers that have happened across generations. So people are aware that look, you can go la 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 all you want, but the facts are the facts. Right. And so um, it's a very powerful tool um, to use with families. Amazing. Okay, so I think we're gonna plug your book once more. <laughs> For those of those of you who just tuned in, we're seeing uh, the cover of Avram's new book called Where Would You Like to Start? Um, I, I, as I said, I, I got it yesterday and I'm almost halfway through it. I don't know if it'll show up on here, but um, it's a really fascinating look at um, <clears throat> an interview between him and one of his supervisors who, and it's an extraordinary window into number one, a unique relationship in terms of your relationship with Dr. Friedman, um, but also a really um, unique way of thinking about families and relationships. And so I'm, I'm super excited to dig more into it. and. Um, what are we going to do next week? Do, should we keep going on Pretty in Pink? Is there more to dig on? I think, yeah, there's a topic that we didn't speak about here. And I, I really, I think that it might be good to focus next week on this one thing. Ellie, you'll let me know what you think. But, and, and also people who watch, I mean, I'd be curious to hear what, what they have to say, what movies they would want us to tackle. I'd yeah. like to talk about this idea of trauma because um, we live in an era of everyone talks about trauma. 
attachment and trauma. Yeah. But in this film, something very interesting happens. And I think it's important to focus on this. Um, if trauma is a real thing, and what I mean by real is that Andy is screwed because her mom left her at a critical time and, and because of attachment issues and trauma, she will never be okay. Right. That is not true. And I think that we can touch on that because Andy had a way of cultivating wise elders in her life. Yeah. And she had a few and she's doing okay. If you look at Andy in the film, now it's a film, but let's, it's a film. So we're talking about a film. I think next week it'd be good to talk about, is it true that if something happens in your past that you're forever doomed in, in sort right. of a very, um, uh, in a very broken way? I would argue that not only is it not true, I think that thinking is, the thinking of that is a problem. And I, and, I, and, and I can share stories um, of my time as a child protection worker in Vancouver, where I saw horrendous, horrendous things. And we, we followed these people throughout the years um, and they turned out okay. But we, I, I think that would be an interesting talk. What do you think, Ellie? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. It's so much part of the vernacular now. And this idea that once traumatized, always traumatized, or you know, or um, someone or just toxic, you know, trauma, chat, toxic, right? Someone just posted in the chat like micro traumas, right? Like, and this idea that like as if trauma isn't some in some way part of life, um, and it's not meant to stop us in our tracks, right? It's actually what do we do with it? So I think it's a great idea. I think it's very much part of the relevant conversation today. And, and Andy's a good example for that. So yeah, I, I love it. Let's do it. And I think it also, by the way, it touches, you know, Ellie, we've talked about David Freeman's concept of the wise elder. I think yeah. that John Hughes actually, and I don't think he attended this, but I think in the film, Iona, uh, yeah. um, Andy's friend, and I think I think that you know you and I have talked about wise elders a concept. I think we can use this film to actually flesh out what what actually is a wise elder. What are the components? And I think looking at Iona, just spending some time on that um, next week would be very interesting. Awesome, she's my favorite character. Like I said, she's my style icon, so I'm totally into that. Okay, great. Next week, Pretty in Pink, we're going to talk about wise elders, trauma, and Iona's amazing fashion sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, good. Have Thank a good week, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. See you next week. Bye-bye.